the Incomparable Podcast. Number 69, December 2011. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I am Jason Snell, your host. We are convening another edition of The Incomparable Book Club. And yet again, I believe this is our fourth thousand page long book <laughs> in a row. Fortunately, our next book is Stephen King's uh, book about the Kennedy assassination and time travel, which is... Uh, it's like 20 pages, right? Also a thousand pages long. <laughs> oh, God, help me. Anyway, uh, today we are going to talk about Reem-D, which is how you pronounce it. By the way, we checked. Neil Stevenson has a video where he calls it Reem-D. It's Reem-D. It's Read-Me, misspelled as Reem-D by Chinese... Hackers, but we'll get to that. Uh, Neil Stevenson's Reem D uh, came out in September, and uh, we've all read it. It took us that long. If you didn't read it, don't. Why are you on this podcast? And if you don't want to know what happens in it, please don't listen to this podcast because we're going to tell you what happens. We're going to talk about what happens in the book. So, joining me to talk about what happens in the book, which is the purpose of a book club, just getting it out there, are Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Huh. Hi, Jason. That's just a check. You've read the book, right? I have indeed read the book. The whole book? The entire book. All right. I think it took me a week, <sighs> maybe a week and a half. That is show off. <laughs> well, no, it's okay. I'm taking like two months to finish Cryptonomicon, so. All right, well. It actually never ends. You know, that book just keeps going. It goes, yeah. That the explains last page a lot. leads into the first page, and it's a thing. Uh, Glenn, that other voice you just heard is Glenn <laughs> Fleischman. Hi, Glenn. Did you read the Hello. book? I read this in entire book front Good. to back i like it that's that's uh th things are looking up for the book club dan morin <laughs> uh also joins us dan i assume you read the whole book this time i read the book the whole book and nothing but the book Good. oh my god so help me god and scott mcnulty hello scott hello you always read the book uh, I didn't read the book this time, and I hope that there are no spoilers, because I'm looking forward to reading it. It's about a detective in New York in the 19th century. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so, Reemdi, um, I guess we should start by talking about how this is, uh, you know, Neil Stevenson is an interesting author. He's written some cyberpunky kind of stuff, like Snow Crash. He wrote a very very sci-fi novel his last time out which was anathem uh he's done action like uh in uh, uh, uh zodiac which is actually a, a book i like a lot uh he did historical kind of you know with a with a sci-fi flavor but historical fiction with a baroque cycle um so he's he's been all over the place and yet despite that i was surprised at the content of reem because it starts out feeling like it's going to be your sort of standard Neil Stevenson, even though it's set in the present day, which I think only Cryptonomicon. Well, no, he's, yeah. Zodiac. Mostly. And Zodiac. Mostly, yeah, Cryptonomicon. Maybe some of those other thrillers that he sort of pseudonymously wrote. Right, right. But um, it, so, but it, it, more or less still, it's like, you know, it starts out a little bit like a, uh, almost like the uh, uh, Cory Doctorow book about... Uh, for the win, yeah, right. for the win, right? Which is about about gold farmers in a in a massively multiplayer game, right? Yeah, the two of them apparently had some conversation where Corey said Corey was he's asking about for the win, and uh, Neil said something like, uh, "What do you know about gold farming?" And they both cackled or something. So they were both wound up, I think, writing their books nearly simultaneously, independently. <laughs> so my theory is that is that uh, 
Neil Stevenson discovered what Cory Doctorow was writing about 500 pages in and said, oh, well, then let's change what my book is about. Let us take a sharp left turn. <laughs> well, listen, I, I want to make a point at the outset, because I think this is what you're getting to about genre, is I think I got 300 pages into this behemoth before I actually understood that there was going to be no contrafactual, hypothetical particles or anything else Some involved sort of in science it. fictional element that yeah like not... really it had because it has all the tropes and feels of it terrain of it, and then... is is an extrapolation of the the massively multiplayer online game called terrain which is the which is the uh invented more or less or co-invented by uh by richard forthrast who is one of the main characters in the book um it's not World of Warcraft, right? But it is like it, and it's sort of the it's played as sort of the next evolution of that. So there's a little bit of speculation in there, but really, it's it's our world. Although right? with Stevenson's t- traditional attention to detail, that extrapolation is, uh, I would say, a hell of a lot better than uh, Ernest Klein's in in Ready Player One in terms oh, of yeah. what the yes. oasis is well. versus terrain is much, you know, I think is much more grounded. Well, there's a good hundred pages devoted to exactly what the terrain of the world is like. That's the name. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, so um, to there's so much here because uh, there's a thousand pages, and th- that's why this podcast will last for a thousand hours, um, or maybe not. Uh, but, but I, I want to go back to this. so. So there isn't. Glenn's right. It, it is. I was surprised on the one hand that there's nothing you know counterfactual. There, nothing that seems. Like it couldn't happen today, which I think is interesting. And then, and then, despite Stevenson having all these different genres that he's played in, I was really surprised at the turn he took because we end up in the last half of this book in basically an action movie, which is, and it's well, I think it's well done, but it, it's funny because it's not what I expect from Neil Stevenson. Now, I don't know what I expected. I guess I expected something less common and and maybe a, a a weirder you know less common kind of genre instead of like guys with guns fighting other guys with guns guys, yeah. but uh that's what we got i was surprised that so most of neil stevenson's books he's kind of famous for going on tangents that are enjoyable to read but you really? last a couple hundred pages and yep. you're like i'm not sure what's going on in this book he seems to have Decided at one point, okay, I'm going to get rid of everything extraneous. It's going to be all plot for 400 pages. And See how uh, you like you're going to like it. Exactly. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. What, what I found really interesting along those lines is also that, like, you start out, not only do you start out thinking the plot's going in one direction, but there are certain characters that you start out thinking, well, okay, this guy's pretty important. And then, you know, some of those characters don't make it all the way through the book. Well, like like Zula's, Zula's boyfriend. Right. Oh, he was pegged for death. Let's be fair. Yeah, but but on the flip side, there are other characters who you think are totally like extraneous, right? Like, I mean, oh, like Sokolov. Yes, Sokolov. Sokolov. Or, uh, Sokolov I, yes. I thought even I thought even Abdullah Jones, of course, who is sort of caught hapless in this random. You know, we'll go through the plot. I'm sure a little bit. He sort of seems like a th- like a random character to encounter. Like he's there as a plot device, right? And then he turns into this hugely important major character throughout the rest of the book. It's like a relay race, though. It's like they're running. This is a this is like an ultra marathon, and their characters are running, running, and only a few of them, like uh, Zula, for instance, makes the way all the way through it. And but they, they kind of pass the baton integrity. too. Yeah, 
Peter hands off to Abdullah, and then Abdullah becomes that, takes up that missing character position. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, okay, here we go. Whoa, now we got Zula, and well, she's and going it, with him. Ivanov sort of starts off as being kind of important, and then, he you dies. know, he's, he dies, he and then away. we got Marlin, and I got to pronounce her name. Author, who sets up Yushia. to have characters who are so significant, and then is willing to, to murder their darlings. You know, he yeah. sets up these, I mean, Ivanov is a great character, and gets crazier and crazier, and then he is gone. And, and then like, he's it's gone. a whole new book. Well, he exits on a high note. No, you don't want to. I mean, you can't get any crazier than that certain level of a crazy yes. after a while. What I really like about Reem D is actually I kind of compare it to Lost in a way, except it's Lost, except everything comes together at the end and makes a lot of sense because you have these pages upon pages of these various characters' backstory. You get a character, Olivia, that's introduced in the middle of the book for. You know, you're like, okay, where did she come from? She has not been mentioned at all previous to this. And you just have to be patient and trust that she's going to get woven into the story appropriately, and she does. And that, I think, happens with most of these characters. Well, yeah, and then uh, you end up with, you know, Seamus Costello later on, who sort of awesome. seems, you know, comes up like 700, 700 pages, pages in. in. Yeah. I would argue yeah. that the characters that are introduced later in the book are better than only all but a handful of ones that you meet near the outset. Like, the characterizations get more interesting. The spy... And the and the uh, uh, you know the military man. I mean, they're they're good kind of archetypes too. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I loved, for example, I loved the duality in the, this whole. I think it sort of starts off in the beginning and kind of gets interwoven between the two writers, Donald and uh, Devin. You know, it's a lovely sort of, sub part. It is, but it makes no. It, there's no plot there really. No, like you kept expecting that to go in more of a no, direction. No, wait a second. Now I just realized. I think he did something to us since we've only had the opportunity in our lives and may never have a chance to read this entire book again because we have jobs and things um it's possible that if you go back and read the book closely that the two writers approach to fiction is actually mirrored in elements of the book as you said that i realized oh he might be playing with us and the two writers are actually contending through the plot of the book some things that are implausible and follow one path and some that follow another it's possible but now we, we'd have to read the book a couple more times well, so, i mean that's an interesting reading of it i think so, somebody could go back and no, I mean, but I, I think there is a, yeah, there is an interesting reasoning there with the tensions of like, you know, sort of a popcorny plot versus something right. that's more grounded. Right. Yeah. And those are sort of two things that are clearly at war with Stevenson himself in this book. That's right. a good catch, Glenn. Right. Uh -huh. no, that, that's very, Thank that's you. very good. Cause you've got, you've got, uh, just to touch on this for a second, you've got uh, D squared, who is this completely um, just arrogant uh, a Cambridge Don who is, writes a, I guess limited amount of fantasy, but it's incredibly impeccably researched. And he's then, Tolkien, right? Yeah, he's Tolkien. yeah, he's Tolkien. more or less. And then, and then you've got Skeletor, who love, just cranks him out, and he's a fantasy. Not, and it it isn't internally consistent, and he just cranks out book Who's after George, book. George George R. R. Martin, of course. No, no he's not. George R. R. Martin no. takes six he's years like to write Terry, a book. Terry yeah, but somebody. the quantity. All right, I'm sorry. You know, it's the quantity and the sort of. All right. Yeah, maybe like not the Terry. speed. He's not maybe George not the R. R. speed. No, because George R. R. Martin has more consistency. No, he is a he is a pulp fantasy novelist like a like a what a Terry Brooks or a I don't or R. A. Salvatore. Okay. Oh. oh, I mean the guy like the guys who write like the D and D books, right? Like the novelizations of all that, and then just crank those suckers out a level above. I mean, he's making real money, so that's part of. I mean, it. he's making real money, but he's not necessarily. He's not like, putting good, anything right? into it. I'm not sure he's, he's not, making real money until he. Uh, until he well, gets until he starts working with T. Because then he gets you're right. Okay. Right. Yeah. He's making it up in volume. I can see the point. But he popularizes the 
the all the ideas that the, the that the Don has, he's the one who kind of popularizes it and makes it accessible and is is a part of the success. So if we're going to take Glenn's idea about these two warring parts of of you know maybe it's of Neil, Neil Stevenson's mind, um, it's also interesting because because the for all of the highfalutinness of the Don, the fact is it's the it's the other guy who makes it all successful even though he breaks some of the things that are in and and, and well also he comes I, back in right he has to come back in and fix in, everything in the end right well and there's the apostropocalypse which yes, is yes thank great, you for whipping that out it's a great word great i word. love that that was pretty good that entire section of the book where they're just like no all of these words have no etym- etymological meanings and they all have to be rewritten and, and you're Glenn, <laughs> that's your hundred page digression Although it does serve a, a plot purpose because the idea is that there's this kind of war of uh, the, the war, the war. Yeah. Of the different colors. <laughs> yeah. I want to come back to that when we get to that point in the plot, because I have some issues with it, but well, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating digression though. Well, and it's yeah. also somewhat the catalyst for, for a lot of this. It's true. And it, yeah. and it mirrors. Yes. So structurally, I, I, how, there's so, there is so much here. <laughs> there's it, too much. Let us, let us sum up. So the plot here is, I think you can summarize it. It's actually a very simple plot, right? Is there's a, it's a, it's a story of a family and some people in it. uh, And in the end, the family comes back. So there is an overarching thing about the fourth rast family. I really like that actually. I love, I love that it starts. I love that um, opening chapter where they're at Thanksgiving and it's this guy who's like kind of on the outs with his family and you don't know why. And it turns out it's because he left home and became successful, but but in a sort of a questionable way. And, you know, it's just, it's fascinating. And then there's the, his niece, who's also kind of an outsider and the texture of that, the, like the mud out, cause they're out in, in like Missouri. Right. And no, it's uh, uh, Iowa. Uh, Iowa. Yeah. All right. So they're in the Midwest and it's, and it's cold and it's muddy and they're shooting at cans and bottles and stuff after while the Thanksgiving uh, d- dessert is being served or something. And, it's just I love the texture of it, and I thought, you know what, this is not what I expected from Neil Stevenson, but I'm yeah. going to go with it because I really enjoyed that part of it. Well, so the so the story, so he's, uh, I mean, so here's the, I'm going to do the very bare bones one, which is that he and another fellow developed a uh, World of Warcraft like game. He winds up hiring his niece after meeting her at this gathering. She has a boyfriend who's kind of a, a slightly Aspergery idiot and needs to raise some money fast because he's overextended the real estate market, gets hooked up with Russian mafia, a virus infects the machine, destroys some of the Russian mafia's uh, information, and then you wind up on this worldwide trip is that people get carried along to China because this crazy Russian guy, this uh, sort of mafioso, wants to, uh, it looks like his house of cards is falling apart. He wants to track down the author of the virus who he decides to personally blame for all his ills. They wind up, uh, that's kind of the whole first arc of the story, is getting to China, figuring this out, tracking down the people who wrote the Reem-D virus, which infected the Russian systems unintentionally and a lot of other people's stuff. They get there, and then you hand off to the next part because they go in expecting to kill all these Reem-D virus writers, these hackers who are, who are uh, holding data for ransom, and instead they run into a Muslim terrorism cell in China, in this industrial or sort of commercial city. They wind and firing up uh, firing uh, on that apartment full of uh, Muslims uh, Islamic uh, terrorists 
who are planning to blow stuff up, and then you get the handoff. And so Zula, Richard's niece, who's a programmer, her boyfriend's killed, the Russian mafioso is killed, Zula is handed off to Abdullah Jones, who then takes the ball, and he runs for it, he goes, he goes, he goes, and they wind up traveling again, you know, uh, large distances, gets them out of China, eventually into Canada, where through a large series of adventures, they finally wind up uh, crossing the border through an area that Richard Forthrast, when he was a drug runner before he started the video game company, had figured out was a way to avoid border control by going through old mines. And uh, meanwhile, a British spy who's gotten involved in China tracks them there. Richard tracks them down, and Richard's family, the rest of them, wind up being sort of uh, not exactly survivalists, but fundamentalists living on the other side of this uh, mining uh, tunnel where it comes out. So you get Islam- Islamic uh, radicals killing people across Canada joining together, crossing into America, and hitting the salt-of-the-earth religious fundamentalists for the big final showdown. What do you think? That's pretty good. Pretty good, though. That's pretty good for the sort of the main skeleton of the plot. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Is there's the two sides, though. The first is, like, we learn all about the video game, we learn all about the culture and whatever, and they're on their way to China, and there's all this China stuff. And the second half is, essentially, you know, Muslim uh, extremists on the run, t- terminating in this sort of uh, run across the border. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. You've got you've got half the book, which is setting up the the uh, you know multiplayer universe and the gold farmers in China and trying to figure all that out. And then the second half is largely um, this action story involving the terrorists in Canada and crossing the border and all of that. It turns out you need to know almost nothing about the entire video game backstory in order to understand the second half of the book. Well, it pretty much disappears after about exactly. Yeah, right. It becomes a communications tool later as opposed to a plot point. Well, and not to mention, you know, hundreds of pages. There, I mean, there's literally hundreds of pages where Richard, who you sort of is set up as the main character in the first, you know, hundred pages, just, just not, there's no point of view from him. He goes away. Yeah, yeah, I thought the book might be about him. And I kept waiting for him to come back. I'm like, that, we're, we're, we're going to go back to him, right? <laughs> like I said, it's, it's like Lost. Each character has their section. It's amazing what kind of a head fake an author can give a reader in the sense that um, we start at the very beginning of the book with Richard Forthrest. And then by the end of that chapter, Zula and Peter have pulled up and he's befriend, befriended them a little bit or said hello to them. And, and, and I think they go somewhere. And um, it's funny because without that chapter you could probably you would probably go in assuming that Zula is the main character but he gives you this head fake where he says no no this is uh, Richard Forthrast is the is the is the main character here and he's not Zula's the main character this really. is her book is this, this is, is really book. Zula's yeah, book absolutely. and Richard bookends it and is the facilitating plot element but it's and she's a great i think she's a great character i mean she does things that are extreme but not unrealistic you can say I can believe that an Eritrean refugee adopted in America who's had her parents, adopted parents killed, gone through all this, managed to get her, you know, and, and whip smart. You can see her being that resourceful. It's not like, you know, McGurlver or something. It's like, it's a real, <laughs> sorry, I'm stealing that from Mythbusters, sorry. It's, it's things that somebody pushed to extremists with capabilities would do. She does sort of just low-tech smart things, right? And she gets a couple lucky breaks, but she also just realizes when there's an opportunity and knows when to take and it. And waits for it. Yeah. Well, you have that yeah. nice section when they're all trapped in the basement. Uh, they've. This is at the point where they've been locked to, to chains and the, uh, the Ru- Russian mafia is going to 
to go kill the Chinese hackers. And the she's trapped with two other hackers who instantly take out lockpicking tools. Or I guess she she gives oh, that him was great. yeah she, she gives, gives him the bobby the yeah. the hairpins and they instantly start lockpicking. But you notice she not being a hacker is not well versed in the art of lockpicking and does not spend her days idly practicing. So she actually has to wait for them. And it's just a nice touch. It's like no, not all three characters are expert lockpickers. It's just this is a this is a hobby certain people pick up. Right, well, but the, the fact that she's smart and does things like I, I mean, the one that got me was um, when she's locked in the bathroom of the yes. high rise in mm-hmm. China, and she writes the long note and sticks it in the drain pipe, just thinking like, "Hail Mary, hey, maybe somebody will find this." And I kind of felt like, you know, reading that. I remember reading it and thinking, "Yeah, it sounds like that's just kind of a throwaway plot point, and maybe someone will find it like way, way down the road or whatever." And then I sort of forgot about it. And then it came back and actually makes it, it actually turns out to be important. (laughs) I also got to say, I think this book is also uh, Sokolov's as well. Like he is a strong second player. He comes in, you think, "Eh, it's just another one of these Russian heavies. He's going to be totally stereotypical. And he is remarkably resourceful. He is a, he is somehow a decent man even though he's former spetsnaz even though he kills people he has a he's the kind of guy that's always in books of this sort he has a kind of honor a code he's of got honor a code, it's not, yeah. yeah he's the exactly mobster ridiculous. with a soul yeah and it's not exactly uh, ridiculous because he's doing things that are logical and sensible and his big problem he doesn't kill people out of anger he kills them out of necessity to protect a client or protect himself and to further the mission and his and his dynamic with Ivanov right where he's like slowly sort of eyeing this guy pretty sure that he's actually going crazy, crazy yeah. and trying to like figure out how do we get out of this situation because there's there's people above Ivanov who are going to be really pissed off when they find out what happened how are we going to get out of this safely? there's some three days of the condor moment in there where Sokolov's like, well, they want me to go out to this ship, but this is oh, how yeah. it always goes. They tell you they go out to the ship, something goes wrong, they shoot you. She never, you know, she never knows. No, Olivia never knows what happened to me. Something went wrong. It's like I'm not going to do the thing they tell me to do. I thought he was going to die there. Oh, there was no way he was going to die. He he knew it. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. On the one hand, you think he's like, oh, he's too clever for that. But on the other hand, you you like, well, I mean, people die in this book, right? And so it's, it wouldn't have been out of the question for him to be like, well, he served his plot purpose. You know, <laughs> maybe he's going to bite it here. No, he's and just the, I mean, that's awesome. nice, though. But it's nice to have that tension, right? Like, there's too many, too many, like, action movies where it's like, well, this is the hero. He can't die, obviously, right? You know, he's the protagonist. We're going to see him through all the way to the end. But whenever, you know, uh, an author doesn't mind killing off their characters, as we've seen several times earlier in the book, you, you get a little worried for the characters that you kind of like, right? Because you're not sure. They, it, easily, they could kill them off. I can't believe nobody has mentioned Chungor. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was only because I couldn't pronounce his name. Chongor, the Hungarian uh, Hungarian hacker. hacker. Rather lovely the, fella. The lovelorn, Chongorn. He is lovelorn. I like all of the secondary characters in this in this wonderful little book. Well, um, and, and Chongor's another good example of somebody who's like, kind of seems like, well, he comes in with the bad guys. Maybe he's important, maybe not. And then turns out to be another very major character. And I love, I love the triad that he forts with, he forms with Yushia and Marlin, right? Like, you know, where they're on the ship and they're like the captain and the engineer. And yeah, I love, I love that sort of unlikely pairing. The deal is everybody is incredibly pragmatic. You notice that in this book, there are a few insane people like Abdullah Jones and, uh, and Ivanov, but everybody else is like, okay, problem happening. How do I get out of this alive? 
Well, you know, moose and I'm, squirrel have moose and squirrel have bomb. I know. I don't want the bomb. How do I get out alive? I jump through window. Abdullah Jones may be insane because he's a terrorist, but he is very practical as well, right? He. Oh, you're right. No, he's totally pragmatic. No, he's, remar- he's very remarkably smart. pragmatic. In fact, he is so businesslike that one of the things I really enjoyed about his scenes where he gathers the ver- he has the various guys. Uh, first, he's got his initial crew, and then he's got the ones who are sort of like the wannabe terrorists. Who they <laughs> the gather, red shirts. Like, well, the, the I, I, if if they ever call me, I'm in Canada. But if they ever call me for a job, I'm there, knowing that nobody's ever going to call them. And then yeah. and then he calls them, and they're like, okay, I'll be sure. Fight for the Jihad. cause. Jihad. But he's yeah, and right. he's but he's kind of like sociopathically charming, right? Like he's well, got he's, that. But he's professional, and what, what strikes me is that some of the people he's working with are not, and you can sense. He 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 hates them, right? He's like they don't. I gotta use. Them well, it's like he got. Yeah, well, like he has hard to find good help, right? Well, you know, there's the, there's he's like collected the rapist, B and C right? players. He's got the rapist also who love... is killed with a CD. By the way, he's, by... he's got re- he's got right. red shirts. He's got yellow shirts. Well, he's... I also like. I can't remember who describes him as this. I think it's either uh, it's either Seamus or uh, Olivia. But someone points out that he's not likely. He's not a martyr, right? He thinks he's too. He thinks he's too valuable. Right. He keeps saying he'll wait for the the right moment, but it's never the right moment. You get the impression he's kind of maybe kind of a coward, like in deep inside, and sort of like thinks he's really smart, but he's also kind of untouchable. Um, and then he sort of slowly sees his plans all fall apart, even though they're very carefully laid, and and he's devoted all these time to them, and and one monkey wrench in the plan, and everything goes to hell. Yeah, you know what's I, I would say there's another arc of the story, which is that I think what I think one of the things that um he's playing with is he creates these remarkable like I, I would argue in the past that used to have a couple good characters in a Stevenson book and everyone else is sort of window dressing and it's everything in the service of the plot and you know, there's a lot of moving mannequins around. In this he's developed um, a, a few really good simultaneous plots and a whole bunch of really great characters, and it sort of moves them all around the board. So sometimes you have things like the video game being predominant, and you're focused on very plotty sorts of things, understand the lay of the world, and he's got this whole thing going on where they're trying to do the War of Realignment on the side, and then you've got all this stuff where it's very strongly character-driven, you're like... This is not how you would imagine someone would write this scene, but this is how it would probably play out. Like the Zula and Abdullah stuff where he actually respects her because she's on her A-game, right? (laughs) She's somebody who, if she were in his side, he'd be absolutely pleased to have, you know, working with him. So one of the things that um, this... uh... The, that did remind me of other Neil Stevenson stuff. You mentioned the boat. There are there are segments. One of the things I always liked about him, and especially in the Baroque cycle, is there are, there are segments of of the books he writes that he fully commits to, and that they they take on a life of their own, and they're not that important to the book. And he could just move things along and say, um, you know, suffice it to say, they were on a boat. And and the boat scene struck me as that. It's like. It, suddenly we're in a totally different book, which is there are people and they're stuck on a boat and they have no gas and they're drifting in the South China Sea. And they, none of them know how to be on a boat. <laughs> no, they don't know anything. <laughs> and that was great. And it's so, you know, again, that's like a whole, I mean, well, first off, it's practically life of pie, but it, it's, it's there, you know, and he commits to it. And, and those characters that we've invested in, um, you know, they he doesn't give that short shrift, and I felt I felt like that when they when they crash land the jet in uh, in Canada in the snowy oh, outback in Canada, yeah. and they have and they find a you know like a, a disused you know shut down like mining camp, 
and they're there for a while and then they and then and then the guys come back and they've killed some people and stolen their 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 snow truck or whatever and then they use that 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 was fully committed to in a way that that I I really like how he can kind of take these set pieces and compartmentalize them and and really commit to them so that you get engrossed and and it's really you know, I said this about a, a few authors that I really like. It feels like that could be a whole book's worth of an idea, and he just tosses it off as, uh, you know, a couple hundred pages inside this, or a hundred pages inside this thousand-page book. Well, that's the same thing with the uh, with the War of Realignment. I mean, Ready Player One, you know, would have fit neatly inside a few chapters of this book in terms of the <laughs> amount of plot sophistication. And the length. Yeah. And the length, yeah. Yes. Ready Player One through Five in this book, really. <laughs> That's the thing that strikes me about Stevenson, having read 2.55 of his novels. Uh, is, yeah. Two decimal places, well. <laughs> I know. Well, iPhone pages. Uh, but it's it's interesting because a lot of a lot of the time when I was reading this book and then when I was also reading Snow Crash and now Cryptonomicon, uh, it feels like if he had wanted to, this could have very easily been a George R. R. Martin, let's write five or six books about this topic. But Stevenson f- seems to find a way to craft a coherent narrative over the course of one book that doesn't necessarily feel like he should be chopping it up into segments, which I, f- I just find interesting. He has a lot of mechanisms running. I mean, I think that's the thing is he's a he's an incredible watchmaker. And in his worst books, the um, watch springs go out of control and destroy the inside. And you're kind of left with like, what the like the end of Cryptonomicon? I will not spoil it for you, Ren. I'm left going like there were a lot of plots and they all unraveled at the end. I never I feel like that yeah. was Stevenson's worst problem. Well, he was bad at endings. He's yeah. always been bad at endings. He's always well, been and bad he's at gotten that. he's gotten better. I mean, I think I think Baroque Cycle through Anathem through. Uh, through Reemdy, he's shown progress in each of those. Yes. I was not horribly disappointed at the end of this. Is I guess what I would say. Like <laughs> not I understand, I was like horribly oh. disappointed. It culminates in a huge climactic fight, right? Yeah, like you know, awesome. just exactly what you expect. You get a nice little denouement at the end, where it sort of wraps up what happens to the characters. In case you're curious, that's right. And 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 that's that. Like you know, he. I think you know, knowing when to stop <laughs> has always been his problem. And I think either he's got a you know an editor <laughs> who's like, hey, Neil, you got plenty here. This is good. Wrap it up. Or he's just sort of figured out, like, oh, yeah, I've come to the end here. I was really impressed about how the ridiculous amount of plot and the ridiculous amount of characters kind of came together at the end. Because you really, you have them coming from all angles. You even have Marlin and Yuxia. You have them winding up in the same place in Iowa. And it's just impressive how how he makes the travels and the fact that, like, through this entire book, I had no clue what was going to happen next. Couldn't even fathom it. I assumed, like, with the terrorists, all right, they're going to get to Canada and maybe the U.S., but the rest of the characters, no idea. Well, he, you find that later. I, and again, if you, if I have the gumption someday to reread this book, I have read Anathem, I think, two or three times, and there are lots of breadcrumbs he plants. I mean, all authors try to put foreshadowing in, but you realize in this, like, going back and looking a little bit, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, back there in the first scene, he's planting the seeds. You know, yeah, he was a, uh, Richard was a drug runner. He figured out this great way to get through the border without having to build his own tunnels. And so, you know, over that period of time, it's like you realize, oh, that's where his brother settled is sort of the black, she- the black, black sheep of the family, the one who's really far out there. And as you go along, you realize that he's converging all of these crumbs to the resort in the north side of this tunnel and the homesteading people, the fundamentalists on the south side. And you can sort of feel it all sort of 
coming together and it's going to all pass through that uh, through that tunnel one way or the other. Well, it's like a GPS, right? You know point A and you know point B, <laughs> but you have no idea what route it's actually going to take. So here's my here's my um, highfalutin analysis of this, which is I, I was struck by how much of this book is about people being um, culturally out of place um, in in a in a foreign culture or out of alignment with their culture. And I'll just run off a few examples. You have the war of realignment, which is all about people forming cultures and drawing lines between themselves. That that actually comes out of this um, universe built by D squared, which is then uh, lived in by Skeletor, who does not really have the same. Uh, he doesn't really match it. Um, but on a personal level, you've got Zula, who is a, a um, an African child adopted by white people in in America. Um, you've got Abdullah Jones, who is a, I believe, an African descent Welshman who converts to Islam and becomes a jihadist. You've got Olivia, who is an English woman of Chinese descent, which allows her to be turned into an operative for MI6 in Asia, even though she's very English. You've got Richard and Richard's brothers, who are both sort of like um, disaffected from culture. The brothers are totally cut off from American society, basically, and living in this homestead. Richard is cut off from his family. Um, you know, you've got. I mean, it goes on and on. These where where so many people and so many situations in this book are about um, people who are not. I mean, on one level, it's just they're not quite what you'd expect. They're not quite. They don't fit the mold, but I think that's purposeful. That that a lot of this, almost everybody in this, is somebody who is stuck. Like Yuxia is from another part of China and has and oh. culturally is completely different from where she ends up, and and she's misaligned. So like everybody in this book is around peg that's stuck in a square hole oh yeah and you get this with d squared d squared and skeletor you already sort of mentioned d squared yeah, d squared's the hole does, and and, yeah, and well and no, but d squared, the peg d squared has never there's d squared has never played the video game and near right, the end so Richard he gets get him dragged in totally invested in there to build up contingents and legions and skeletor doesn't know this highfalutin literary word world because he's a pulp hack and he gets dragged into this thing with arguments about apostrophes Right, right. But anyway, I, I think I think it's good. You know, I think uh, Stevenson is that that's certainly an undercurrent here is that the, these are all about people um, who are in who are not sort of what you'd expect in the role that they're in. And um, I, and I love that. I, I think that I think that's great. But I, I think it's got to be the most obvious examples being Zula and Abdullah Jones, who are um, not if they're not from where they're from. And that some says something about that's part of their character, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, but in, in, at, a, at a base root for writing it, it creates tension, right? Because they're different from all the people around them, and that creates conflict, and that's what drives the plot forward. Everybody's in that situation in this book. So that's why I think it's more than just him structuring it for conflict. I think that he's he's trying to do this on purpose to have it. This this book is in some way, I think, about being somebody who's out of place right right down to the fact of somebody who doesn't understand an mmo can't really understand what's going on inside the mmo because they are not they don't fit in the culture it's all a cultural misfit even the even the the russian even ivanov is 
kind of like broken. He, he his bosses don't, you know, he's not behaving properly. He doesn't fit in in anymore. And Sokolov doesn't really fit anymore because he's got this job, but he doesn't really clearly he doesn't really fit what they're asking him to do. It just it goes on and on. It, it, it's I just kept being fascinated by finding that every single person views themselves as being like disaffected from the the job they're in or the culture they're in or they're different in some way you know and i i just i i thought that was that's my that's my take on it i i'd like to talk about um some of the the characters we didn't like <laughs> or who weren't likable like i you know there are some characters that were disposable like peter i think peter the boyfriend uh, zula's boyfriend is great because he's sort of unlikable when you meet him and you figure well you know the character development we're going to learn to understand why we should like him it's like oh. no he's kind of a jerk he makes really bad decisions and they get worse and worse. And finally, he, when he's killed, I got to say, I love the fact that Ivanov is like indifferently at times a gentleman. And he thinks Zula is worthy of respect because of how she comports herself and her intelligence. And he, Ivanov, despite being in the situation where he's crazy and he's lost all this money from the, the consortium he represents and is chasing to China, he's still trying to defend that notion. So Peter is killed not because Peter did something uh, wrong or crossed him, he's killed because Ivanov is offended that Peter has left his girlfriend chained by Ivanov downstairs to die, and Peter should be there. Why does Peter steal the credit cards that gets him in this whole situation? He's, got, he's behind, it's a mortgage uh, thing. Yeah, he's, it, under, he's underwater. He's underwater, and he's worried he's going to lose his loft, and by extension, that means that he can't run the thing he's doing, and it's like, it's it's not that well-defined, but I think it's sort of supposed to be this, like... It's a bad reason. Well, yeah, yeah. He made it, yeah, it's a very casual thing. Instead <laughs> of borrowing money from people, selling it, filing for bankruptcy, he's like, well, I used to do this, I know how to do it, I'm going to do one last haul, it's my last job, then I retire. And causes but, everything else to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you sort of and you do blame him. And the other thing is, the thing that set this all in motion, of course, is Peter on the one hand, and then Richard, who completely, uh, essentially, innocently spreads Reemdi, the virus, so that it, it triggers this event. Peter's callousness, the casualness of, can you give me a USB stick? He hands him one, and then that's where everything goes. All right. Don't forget, don't forget Wallace in there, too. Who, right. The match has been lit. A fleeting character who... And yet, we've got that chain, right? Wallace gives way to Ivanov, gives way to Jones... You know, and sort of, you know, everything goes downhill from there. I like but, Wallace, though, as as briefly as we see him. As as long as he lasts. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised that they actually killed him. The, I, the, mob, I the mobster a- who's also the gamer, I do kind of enjoy that. I enjoy that there is a rant. Like, I enjoy that sort of bizarreness that, that comes with this fact that, like, you know, the, the hand-waving, oh, it's a game, it's really popular, it's more popular than World of Warcraft. And the people that we see playing it include uh, the the bookkeeper for the mob, basically, Um we get the Seamus Costello point, plays it. Seamus, yeah, the, the CIA operative. I was thinking even just the throwaway character that Richard sees in the diner, and he looks over. He's like in the coffee okay. shop out visiting Skeletor, right? And there's a guy playing T. Rain, and so he calls up, you know, his buddy at the uh, at the office and says, "Oh yeah, how many people are like logged on from this diner, or whatever?" It's like we get the impression that there's people out there in the middle of you know Missouri or wherever he is visiting this guy who are playing this game. This game is huge. I, can we talk? Let's talk about the war realignment a little, because I think that's an extremely interesting uh, development in here. Which is to say, basically, they end up so like any you know game of this sort. They sort of you know promulgated on the idea that 
We've got good, good and we've got good evil. Good characters and evil characters, whether it's right. D&D or something like Warcraft, you can be on this and, one and, side or the other. And all other. of a sudden, you know, there is this sort of interesting realization that it doesn't really make sense because the people who are quote-unquote evil aren't doing anything particularly different from the people right. who are quote-unquote good. So it's an arbitrary distinction. They're two sides of the same coin. But they need it, right? Because it makes the tension. It makes the conflict in the game. And so this war of realignment is shifting from instead of it being about good versus evil, it's about something very different. And I think, you know, without sort of delving directly into it, I think it's about taste, right? Like yep. that's what it kind of comes mm-hmm. down yeah. to. And yeah. it emerges from it, 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 it emerges from the game. It's not intended by the game. And it emerges from the fact that the game is being played by human beings who have differences and different worldviews that go way beyond picking when you set up the game, well, I'm going to be evil because I want to be one of those cool characters that's only available in evil. Well, I think it kind of reflects on the game itself because when you think about the the reason why terrain was created in the first place is Richard basically says, well, you know, WoW is popular and that's great, but this basically gives us a way to monetize all of these Chinese gold farmers and make gold farming an Mm -hmm. actual legitimate profession. So you already, you have it where... The Americans are playing the game for a completely different reason than the rest of the co- the rest of the world. So you already have that imbalance, and to bring in even more, well, you have the people who want to play the game as D squared envisioned it, you know, with the, you know, with all old costuming and correct colors and things like that, and then you have well, and 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 this is a real tension with a lot of online games where it's like there's the people who want to play for the like the role playing story elements. Mm-hmm. And then there are the people who are there to play, you know, a hack and slash game and don't care, really, except the story's just there as a crutch, right? You know, the world is there as a crutch. And then there's the other people who are just really into everything that's, that's you know, created by that world. And and that's a very – I think that's a very real distinction in, you know, a lot of games that exist today. And so it's kind of fascinating to see that taken on. Like, what if those were to become the factions? And, I mean, I don't know. Is there is there an implicit sort of – class warfare almost between them given the representations yeah. that we get of like of donald and devon you know as the two polarizing figures um uh, yeah. it certainly seems yeah, like it. A oh, yeah. one of them lives in a castle and the other lives in a trailer it's an excellent point Yet they're both kind of majestic uh, infrastructures in their own ways it's well true. and they're both kind of jackasses right i remember reading uh, i remember reading lord of the rings and then sort of shannara and you know if I if my childhood recollections are right, sort of those different kinds of things, like sort of Shannara, like yeah, there was a mythos, and I think it got developed more, but it was really like a big hack 'em up. It was much more of a hack 'em up vision quest, you know, broad strokes thing versus you know, for, like a book created in order to enshrine languages with a grammar that a Cambridge Don had developed, and it attracts different people. Some people want first person shooters that they just kill lots of stuff, and I mean, you know, Penny Arcade, the comic is constantly full of basically that tension between this is a really subtle game and look, we have these scrolls and blam, 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 kills y'all, kills y'all, you know, and that's, I think that's a constant tension between the sophistication of some aspects of game design and um, this desire to be highfalutin, you know, here's a virtual environment in which we can do anything, so why are we just shooting people? Well, it's like the constant arguments that we get over whether or not video games are art, right? You know, uh, Roger Ebert, I know, has delved into that pool and, and a variety of other people as well. But it is that idea? Is it? Is there some sort of higher? Can it? Can it reach a higher realm, or is it 
just about killing people or is there art inherent in the idea of something even if it's just about killing people like you know again this could be a whole book and yet it sort of ends up being falls by the wayside as ream d progresses I have to say that uh, one thing I liked about this novel, too, is I'm assuming, because of the way Neil Stevenson works, that I learned a lot. This was an after-school special about the Russian mob and uh, Chinese people living in different parts of the country and British Columbia's byways and highways. Uh, you know, when he was writing long features for Wired, like, I believe he traveled around the world possibly twice, once to follow fiber optic and where it was being built in weird places like in the middle of Indonesian jungles and uh, and. Another time when he followed container ships, you know, like what, what's the unit of container and how was it developed and where do they go? And I feel like this is kind of uh, the equivalent, well, not exactly the equivalent of that, but it's the, he went, the, the, the detail is so refined, I don't believe he made it up. Has everybody here played massively multiplayer games before? Uh, mm-hmm. not massively. I, I have not. <laughs> I have, really? No, I mean, I I've, played, I've played games that have that multiplayer element, the same sort of, you know, like an MORPG. Minus the first M there. Scott, what did you say? <laughs> I've played World of Warcraft once or twice. All right. Wow. I, I, I'm... Uh, have you? I have a little bit. I, I played in the beta of World of Warcraft, which I realize is now, since that was when my son was in utero, that's like seven years ago now. That yeah, they just had their seventh anniversary, I believe. Oh, gosh. My wife played that much more than me, actually, and then and then she had a baby, and then there were two children, and that was that for World of Warcraft. But sort of how that no works. Time. We did play it some, and and um and that gave me enough of a perspective on it, I think, to 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 get what it's about. But I, I wonder what that would be. Does this book make as much sense? Do you feel if you've never really played those games? Do you feel as if? You understand what they're about by reading this? Does it have that kind of tour you know, guide feel? Speaking as someone who has never played an actual MMO, um, but has played a lot of other games, I think there's stuff that translates even in that to other, you know, from other sorts of gaming or for other interactions with people. It, it, there are very recognizable ideas in here, and it's not a huge stretch. And, you you know, especially someone who's immersed kind of in gaming culture, like I'm familiar enough with the tropes and thing and, and, and elements that make up an MMO to sort of recognize them here. And it, it seems pretty clear, you know, that this is a pretty accurate description of what goes on. And it's not hard to extrapolate, you know, the kinds of people that you're going to run into, the people like, you know, the trolls, right, who are there to just sort of uh, do, you know, cause havoc to a certain extent and and profit the from it when they can right? yeah the griefers and you know all that i mean that's really interesting and i think i think what's fascinating to me about the world of terrain as it's described is the sort of key that richard hooks into in coming up with it which is let's take gold farming and legitimize it and and build our game around it right um and not only do that but like you know basically in order to make sure that it works, duplicate the exact same sort of strictures that we deal with in real life if you had to farm gold. <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, it's if, you, if you're going to produce that kind of a game, you need that kind of a structure to back it up. You can't just randomly put gold there because somebody is going to figure out the algorithms and exploit it. Right, but you wouldn't have to explain that in a book, right? Yeah. You just say like, oh, yeah, there's gold. And it shows up, but he goes into it, how it works. And it's fascinating. 
I've never done an MM poor guy either, so I have no idea how they're played. But I didn't feel I didn't feel lost in the environment. But I, I have to say I like um, again Stevenson his accuracy. The fact that technical details were accurate was awesome, especially after reading Ready Player One with implausible you know five right. million. There's no latency. It, it never crashes, uh, yes, and it's, it's, it borders on precognition. I I, yeah. I liked. Yeah. Um, one of the things that always struck me about about World of Warcraft is the you know when your character dies, unlike in in uh, Ready Player One, when your character dies and they're dead and you've got to start over. Yeah, that would really work. Uh huh. Um, yeah. You you go into like a limbo state and you go back to where you were. Uh, you know the you last time. Stuff. Yeah, and you've got to go to run as a ghost and go back to. You know, it, it's you're basically a time penalty when you die, and so I love how. Um, you know, it's got a it's got a death mechanism and it's got an idle mechanism where uh, Richard, right. when he's the taken behaviors, when he yeah yeah when he, Richard is taken by Abdullah Jones and and dragged basically across the border, you know the last thing we see is his character, which is the basically the god of terrain, is it just auto walking back jogging to its back home. to his home. I love that little detail. Yeah, I I want to read my um my favorite little passage from this book uh, which I think you'll maybe find surprised about what part of this book it's from but it just made me laugh and it, it, it's so absurd um, and it's it describing so so Donald D squared the um, the uh, highfalutin Cambridge Don who has his castle on the Isle of Man yes. um, he he surrounded himself with toadies who are basically oh, yes. society for creative anachronism type people and he's living as a consultant to a high tech company, he's living in a castle that is trying to be immaculate, immaculately <laughs> medieval. So, what happens if you want to contact him? And and they've worked it out. And this is my favorite passage, which goes like this. So the email pipeline now worked like this. Down in Douglas, the primary city of the Isle of Man, the girlfriend of one of the medievalists who dwelled in a flat there, I happen to rather like tampons, would read D Squared's email as it came in, filter out the junk, and print out a hard copy of anything that seemed important, and zip it up in a waterproof messenger bag. When it came time to walk her dog, she would stroll up the waterfront promenade until she reached the wee elven train station at its northern end, where she would hand the bag to the station agent, who would later hand it over to the conductor of the narrow-gauge electrical train that wound its way from there up to the interior of the island. Island. At a certain point along the line, it would be tossed out onto the siding and later picked up by D-Squared's gamekeeper, who would carry it up the hill and place its contents on the desk of the in-house troubadour, who would translate it into medieval Osechen and then sing and or recite it to D-Squared at mealtime. The lord of the manor would then dictate a response that would follow the reverse route back down the hill to the girlfriend's laptop and the internet. <laughs> Wow. It's a wonderful image. That, that might have been the most unrealistic part of the entire I, book. I don't know. Some people actually have great, constructed their great. lives to be more like that. Larry Ellison has built some kind of Japanese reconstruction <laughs> on top of a hilltop in Woodside. So, Yeah, in order to get an email to Larry Ellison, like you need to send ninjas to <laughs> yeah, assassinate you actually, him. You actually have to assassinate three people to send an email to Larry Ellison. It's, it's pretty, it takes a big toll, so be careful. Yes, I realize that's ridiculous, but I mean, there there are lots of there are no, things that great. are heightened. It's like a great that. detail, but that's a, so he's created his own kind of physical T rain, right? So he's created this this yes. replica of an age that never really existed. Why go into the internet when you can just buy a castle? Exactly. <laughs> But I love that when then he, like, he goes into the you know into T rain, he doesn't have shoes, right? <laughs> 
but he doesn't need to buy them because they, they cost something. He's like, yeah, hey, why would I waste money on shoes? I don't need shoes here. And that's fascinating, though. I mean, that's an interesting point, though, right? Because this is this guy who 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 insists upon, you know, authenticity, right? Verisimilitude. Like, he wants to, to look real. And yet when he goes into the game, it's, I don't want to waste money on shoes. Well, he has very little respect for the game at first. Right. But it, right. It, And that's fascinating because it's a divergence in not... You know, he, he's a snob, right? Like, that's essentially what he is. Mm-hmm. He looks down on all of this. And so it's funny, though, that he forsakes his own principles to a certain extent once he gets immersed in that world. What's interesting to me there is he's completely snobbish about the game until Richard basically is like, hey, look, you can earn money here. You can pay for all of these wonderful things that you keep on putting in your castle, and you can help us build a world. Your knowledge of this culture is valuable. <laughs> right. I mean, but that essentially undermines to a certain extent, right? Like, because this whole thing is, you know, well, it's, it's you about can sell taste. Out. And pure, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right, Mr. I mean, that's Mr. Big Shot. You could sell out and make money. Like, oh, right. So we're back to that. Well, and too. so he's kind of saying that the taste is kind of yeah. hollow in the end, right? You know, like. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily, he only runs skin deep. Well, you know, and if he's, he's a, a Don who's writing a, who, who made money writing fantasy novels, so he's already sold out, right? I mean. But he doesn't see it that did. way, yeah. right? He, you know, he, he, like Tolkien, he's come up with the whole language and, you know, the whole society and culture, you know, he's kind of like, you kind of picture him as that guy who desperately wanted to be, you know, respected academically, but even though he really secretly wanted to write all this like trashy fantasy. So I want to talk about the end of the book because um, it does end in a hail of bullets. <laughs> and um, I don't read a lot of books that end with this much gunplay. And there's like a lot of detailed. I, I thought it was strange that he was thanking uh, experts on ammunition and and uh, and weaponry in the acknowledgments. But no, no, it, it, I see why. Because it it's uh, incredibly detailed in uh in and I just wanted to know what you guys thought about the the action sequence at the end. We've got a chase, we've got a couple different groups coming through the mountains. Um there's a helicopter that gets shot down by a guy and then somebody blows something up and and there's a go there booby traps and tunnels and there's a uh uh exchange of gunfire on a hillside or on, on like a, a guy with side. a claymore mine strapped <laughs> to his chest yeah oh, awesome. and then and then there's the there's the you know the shack and then the houses in the settlement and they're the they're the terrorists coming down fr- from through the they're coming through the tunnel and then they're the other terrorists who are coming up the street uh into the neighborhood and i mean he has so many pieces and it's messy uh, but it's it, and it's exciting um uh, you know, it, it's not what I expected. I'm just wondering uh, what you guys thought of that, the the, the ending. Because the ending drops all pretense of being about, you know, pe- whatever we've said this book is about. And, and, and in many ways, it just comes down to people with guns um, getting in the yeah. right position so that they can shoot other people. It's true. I mean, I've, I've, read a, I've read a lot of Tom Clancy. <laughs> I've read a few. I've read a few Tom Clancy's. And, and there are some Tom Clancy's that that kind of you know that kind of read like this, uh, you know, it it it's very reminiscent of that. And yet, somehow I you know maybe I maybe I just maybe I myself am caught within that war of of taste, <laughs> and and want it to be better than that. Um, but I mean, it is grip right? You know, it's gripping, it's page turning, and I think you know he does a very good job of sort of not only making it just about 
the halo gunfire but also you know we do have some some relationship stuff going on in these last few pages because we have you know richard thinking he's basically you know he's toast he's just happy that you know he got zula back and happy that she'll survive even if he doesn't make it out um and we get you know a number of other characters who just sort of are working towards some other goal and we get their their relationships and interactions with some of the other characters and i i was surprised in the end that i thought more of the characters that we liked were going to bite it <laughs> and in fact the only one who really the only we, we lose two right and they're both kind of minor characters i mean not in their you know importance but in their screen time yeah well i was i was kind of I thought he did such a great job. I was far more interested, I should say, in the kind of the T-Brain aspect of this because I thought it was so interesting and original. And I was kind of disappointed when it sh- – I could – it was there was a clear shift into, okay, now it's just going to be a thriller. Uh, I mean, it's a well-written thriller, but I was hoping – I thought the book could be so much more. It was good, but I wanted to, to be, like, amazing, and I just kind of thought it ended kind of like a cliché. Well, that was that was my feeling when they made the turn, is that I started to think, I wonder if this really is him realizing that Cory Doctorow did a whole book about uh, gold farmers and 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 MMO, you know, in China, and I'll so I'll do something different. Well, I should point out, yeah, I mean, uh, for the win, which I which I liked, I think I I don't I think there was a minority opinion at the time, or maybe no one else had read it. For the win has you know uh, Chinese American people and other strange nationalities springing the globe and conspiracies and mafioso and things being kicked down and people being killed unexpectedly in the middle of the book and it's a big shaggy dog story too a very different kind of one a lot more polemical than this because I'm not sure there's a I don't think there's a moral of this story is there um, don't live don't, be a, ter- don't yeah. be a terrorist don't, don't be the last one killed <laughs> exactly. What is good versus evil? Well, I mean, uh, the the family themes are obvious, I think, are are a part of it, that that you've got um, not just the family and the fourth rest family um, that have a lot of differences, but in the end, you know, I I know it's hokey, but that is one of the messages here is like people pull together and they may have some differences, but in the end, you know, you stick with the people who matter to you and you see these different oddly paired people come together and you know that's sort of a theme of it but it's not exactly something kind of deep and earth shattering you know the other one is like everyone wants to belong to something right so right all those outsiders exactly all the characters are looking for some connection uh which is also kind of cliche but you know it's a theme in lots of stuff and we we do end up with a lot of them paired off at the end right which I thought was a little, little. It turned it a little bit into like a Shakespearean comedy. Multiple couples. Everybody, yeah, yeah, everybody's getting married and oh. happy at the end, except for except for Richard. There's a lot of love story hiding in this thousand. I mean, novel. there is, but not. I mean, not one that really makes any sense. No, it's mostly just, <laughs> hey, we're all well, in I trauma. mean, it's like, yeah. okay, so Olivia, who I who I love, I actually think is a really great character. One of the funny things about Olivia is when she's sent on her mission, she's specifically told, basically, please don't have sex with anybody. <laughs> Which is like okay, <laughs> wow. And she, well, after I mean, lady. she makes that quip of that like James Bond gets to do it. How come I don't get? Yeah, to do yeah. It? But was, I mean, she's the most. I like their relationship the best out of I, all I of do them too, because it's, it's funny, the only one that has any substance they, to it. They go through all of that, and, and and then and then they're on the island, right? They swim to the Taiwanese island, and and they, you know, well, we're tired, and you know, we got to spend the night here. All right. 
Um, and that's a, you know, one of one of the things that that my friends used to criticize Stevenson about in his earlier books is throwing in gratuitous sex scenes all the time, which I think is still a little. I mean, he does that in Cryptonomicon and in Snow Crash to a certain extent. Like it's just like oh. Uh, yeah, I should probably have a sex scene here. Like, it doesn't, it's kind of weird. Like, it's, it's, it makes sense to a certain degree in the, in the illogical plot, but you also didn't necessarily need it. Olivia and Sokolov, I felt that was earned, right? I mean. Yeah, they, they have the best relationship of anybody. I mean, like, as much as I like Changor and Zula, his fascination with her, like, it's a little strange based on, it's sort of like, you know, he sees her, it's like love at first sight, right? And I mean, I, I liked him much better when he was the foil to Peter and like Peter's a jerk and doesn't really care about anything that Zula does. And Shongor like, hey, you know, like I'm kind of a gentleman, you know, at least be polite. But like the fact that he then goes all the way across, you know, around the world <laughs> to track her down is a little bit thin. Yeah, yeah. You did get the sense that Stevenson, he wanted to get some people together. He wanted it to be about love in the end. That's right. Love conquers all people. And There's guns. your theme. No one loved Abdullah Jones. <laughs> Love conquers all, but not as much as but guns. Guns, guns, exactly. yeah, guns. guns don't hurt. I I do like Abdullah Jones's exit in a in a by uh, nearly by animal that he's like you know it's an oh the, it's a cougar cat panther yeah. or whatever he says it is. What does he say it is? It's a it's a no it's a it's a cougar. It's a mountain lion. Mountain lion Wait, yeah. What does he say? He says it's a it's, it's a big cat. Oh, it's a big cat. <laughs> yeah. It's just a big cat. But it's like, of course, because nobody, and then Richard, I mean, that's the great, you know, loop there is you open with people shooting guns for uh, the hell of shooting guns at the beginning, and you end with him, um, you know, shooting, doing the, the thing he has to do, which is to shoot Jones, and Jones finally being flummoxed after that many thousands of miles and thousands of lives. Right, but there's nothing operatic or anything about that, that death, which I actually kind of appreciated, is that in the yeah. end, Richard's finally got a shot, and he takes it, and Jones is dead, and that's it. I was wondering, I mean, did you guys find yourself wondering who was going to get to do it? You know, like, because yeah, in a certain yeah. poetic justice, right, you kind of expect Zula almost. Yeah. But at the same time, you're kind of relieved that she doesn't have to be, you know, have that sort of burden or what have you. Or, or you know, have to, you know, kill somebody face to face like that or something. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's interesting. I kept wondering who was was going to turn out to be Zula. Was it going to turn out to be Seamus? Was it, you know, Sokolov? I don't know. Af- after they bash in Richard's brother's skull with his own prosthetic leg i feel like oh man richard kind of gets the honor there right well and make his you know basically shoot his shoot up his best friend and get him to blow himself up right <laughs> that was badass that was badass oh. yeah i do i like chad i like i like his little digression at the beginning right where he's riding the motorcycle and he gets the corn stock like shoved up his eye. Oh yeah, terrib- terribly gross. And you kind of forget about that because brain. he goes away for like seven hundred pages, and then he comes back and he's like, "Eh." Um. So, uh, so wrapping up. Um. Uh. What do we? What do we think? What you know? In in the grand scheme of of uh, of Neil Stevenson and his books, and also just sort of as as its own thing. Uh, what's the verdict on Reemdy? Always buy a kilogram of tea from a short Chinese woman wearing bright blue boots. I got a I got a fortune that said that the other That's day. Words exactly to live right. by. Worked out, didn't it? I I mean, depends on your definition of worked out. Can she ever go home again? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. No. What, so uh, so what's the verdict, uh, Ren? What do you think? I quite liked it. Uh, as again, having only read two Stevenson books, I started with Snow Crash and then I read this one. 
so far my my record's pretty good. Of course, I'm still halfway through Cryptonomicon, so anything can happen there. But Reem D I quite liked. I like Cryptonomicon. There's Cryptonomicon's worth worth it for the journey, if not the if not the destination. <laughs> so Scott, what did you think of this book? I have conflicted feelings about this book. After you know, I read Ready Player One, either before or after this, and this is clearly like 14 million times better than Ready Player One. Uh, there's there's no comparison. Also longer. But you, you, if you multiply wow. by zero, Scott. Well, it's true. Which Ready Player One is, so it, it may... <laughs> I didn't think people would out. hate that book that much. I didn't like it, but I was stunned at the level of hate. I thought it was. That's because yeah, you I, don't it, have taste. Yeah, we, we did a whole podcast on it. We don't need to talk I about it I didn't like it. I just I'm was just stunned. Uh, so in that frame of mind, very successful. I thought it was a fun book, but I, I thought... Uh, I have to admit that he kind of missed an opportunity to write, like, a great book. And I know I read some interviews with him after reading the book because I was like, this book is not anything like what I expected. And he just wanted to write a thriller. And so he wrote a thriller. Uh, and, uh, you know, check. You succeeded, Neil Stevenson. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dan, what about you? Um, I quite liked it as well. Uh, you know, our colleague, John Syracuse, asked me the other night um, – should I read this? And I sat there thinking about it for a while, <laughs> trying to figure out how to answer that question. Um, I mean, I think I recommended it to I, a lot of people, um, including I think I told him in the end that I think he should read it. Uh, I'm not sure if he'll like it or not, but I, I think it's a good book. Um, and, you know, it, like Scott says, it kind of it goes in a, di- a direction, obviously, that you don't expect a lot. And it, and, and such is not it is a very unexpected book, unexpected book for Neil Stevenson. But then again, all of Neil Stevenson's books are kind of unexpected. This guy's writing like a like a huge epic about like the Mongols right now, <laughs> um, among other things. So, um, but in the end of the day, I, I I really like it. I had some minor quibbles and flaws, but it and it grips you and it keeps you going. Right, like I kept wanting to read the next page. And and if you you know sort of sum it down to that, I think that's a that's pretty successful. Getting uh, you know a reader to turn the page to want to turn the page is a little bit that's of a, a that's, that's a magic trick. A big deal on the on yeah. the uh, part of a writer, and he had to accomplish that a thousand times. <laughs> uh, Glenn, what about you? I think this is one of my favorite Stevenson novels, and I actually quite you know I I like Anathem. I um. Ren, if you read that, you have to establish base camps at various points and bring supplies <laughs> with you because it's a long trip to the top, and then you have to get down the other side. That's right. And then you have to climb down. Quite, quite but, literally, actually, Glenn. You have to go yeah, to the North like, Pole and oh then down the other God. side. Oh, oh but the, uh, but the, uh, but I thought this All was worth it. I thought he did a terrific job in integrating, like, keeping the stuff that that we like about his work without pandering to us. Um, you know, in doing his sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, it's a little Moby Dickish. It's kind of like, I don't know if that's Uh-oh. a good way to put that. There, I beg your pardon. There goes our clean tag. Herman Melvillian in that, you know, he likes to be Herman Melville and <laughs> in the middle of, you know, fighting a whale, have 500 pages on how you extract whale oil. And he <laughs> and he sub, he submerged that desire just like a whale here and made it a much more riveting story. And I, and I think I liked it. I was surprised. You know, I was sort of like, okay, wow, this is different. And then just raced through it, read it like crazy. I'll compare this to Greg Bear a few years ago that is a sci-fi author by trade. I think now not 
really consider that. He came up with a book called Quantico that was sort of about the Amerithrax anthrax attacks and had a plausible scenario of how it could have been created somewhere. And there was, you know, a mysterious man traveling around the country and weird attacks and Islamic extremists or no Jewish extremists, I think in this case, perhaps, and and so forth. And I don't think it, I don't feel like that book pulled it off. Like he just couldn't make a good story without having supernatural or ridiculous elements. It was, he was rooted in the real and he couldn't make that transition and give up the things that made Greg Bear what, uh, what he is. And Stevenson, I think, you know, he tries to tell a good story and this time he really did. It just, it just moves along. And there's a point where I'm just devouring the book as fast as I can, which I, I don't recall ever having done with anything, but maybe, I mean, Snow Crash and Zodiac are more like that. Snow Crash is less dense, but... They're a lot shorter, too. Yeah. They're shorter, yeah. I mean, Snow Crash I've read many times. Or uh, It's just, uh, you know, I, I think... I mean, like, his weakest book, I think almost is The Diamond Age, which I feel like... Oh. I don't know. I, what, do you like that? I mean, I, there's some great stuff in it. That's my favorite. Some great stuff That's my favorite of his, yeah. Really? Scott and I well, we say you were wrong. A, Down with we didn't have a Glenn. We need to have a Ooh. Stevenson Fight Club episode, clearly. But Diamond Age, I thought, was full of clever stuff, but I don't feel like it hung together. And there was a lots of extraneous things and lots of sort of you know weird cultural ideas he had to throw in a blender and, and make us believe was real. But I had great stuff in it. This, I felt, held together as a real, uh, as an interesting work without um, without going too far astray from his core liking this, the thing we like about him. Thank you. <laughs> Jason, what did you think? Yeah. Oh, well, oh, thank you for asking, Scott. You're welcome. Mm. Um, I liked it, but um, I, I, want, I have some caveats. I, I, I like that it, it has an ending. Even though the ending is really the ratcheting of the plot machinery, <laughs> um, Neil Stevenson has a real problem with endings. And I like his, I love his work. I really do. It's so inventive. I love his digressions. Sometimes the digressions are the best part. They're just so delightfully strange and fully realized. But his endings, like Snow Crash, is such a great book, and and the end is just a disaster. It, it, he doesn't know what to do, and and I feel that way in a lot of his books. And sometimes yes. I feel like the length of his books is because he can't figure out how to end it, so he just keeps writing, hoping that he'll yeah, just be struck down, and they'll say, "Well, it's unfinished, but here it is." Um, and so, so I like that this book has an ending, and I don't mind that it ends in in a giant hail of of, of gunfire. <laughs> I, what I'd say is that it's a strange agglomeration of a book. I, as as interesting and and strange as it is that the book takes a left turn when Zula decides to send them to the wrong apartment in China, because that's really what this is, is she says go to the third floor instead of the second floor, um, or whatever, fifth floor instead of the sixth floor. Um, my What I would say is I think this book would have been better if the stories were more integrated and there wasn't a left turn, and so what what you ended up getting was um, when you get to that climax with the guns that there's also something happening in terrain, and there's more you know it's more simultaneous and it and it's part of a bigger story and and where I felt left down was I, I just felt left let down that he was dropping large elements and um that that you know it was it was messier than i than i would like i feel like i don't have a problem with what he did but i feel like it was kind of too big of a change for him to solve so he just went ahead with the left turn and and, and he, throw, he throws her in ballast overboard in order to you know to achieve or or something like that he had to let all the air out of the balloon to land the 
plot or something. Right. Well, right, yeah, <laughs> it's something. Sure. Uh, One of those metaphors will work. Balloon surely. metaphors was it a zeppelin? Um, so. Were you just throwing all those metaphors out? Until I hit Jason on the no, head but, with one of but, them. But, you know, you know what I mean? It's sort of like what I, what I wanted to have at the end was, was the action integrated a little bit more with some of the other kind of technical extrapolation stuff. No, I, I totally agree with you because the video game, at some point, you're like, wait a minute. They sort of just brushed off that whole thing that we've been talking about for 800 pages in passing here and there. And it's been connective tissue. Suddenly it's completely unimportant compared to, uh, you know, the local police department flying in a helicopter, which gets suddenly shot down by an air to ground missile. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I liked it, but that was my, that, that, so that would be my, my take though, is I wish it was more integrated together instead of it just being the left turn. Cause as, as clever as that left, left turn twist is in a way, cause you're like, Whoa, I'm surprised it goes for the rest of the book and it it ends up not seeming so much as a clever authorial decision as it does that he regretted the story he was writing and decided to write something different and 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 that so I love that that he wrote it he's learning how to do an ending I wish that it had been more of a a whole work instead of feeling like a book that he started and thought better of and then wrote something else and then sold the whole thing to us that's what I think, Scott. Thank you for asking. You're Maybe welcome. you regret it now. No, I, I agree with you. So. I'm I'm just surprised how much we all liked the book. I was I was thinking that I might be the odd one out or one of the odd ones out, and um and there were parts I didn't like as much, but I uh, it was a great read, and I'm glad we for once we were all. Well, his style and his inventiveness and his intelligence gets lets him get away with a lot. I think. Yes. This is true. We respect it. We respect the fact that he respects us as a reader, that he thinks we're actually going to be interested in the stuff he has to tell us and not have to walk us, you know, take us by the nose through it. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so that's why I I'll buy, you know, a Neil Stevenson anything, because, you know, he's a good writer with lots of good ideas and is smart and um, and writes about things that I'm interested in. And even though he's got his faults. Uh, it's worth taking a, a chance when he when he does something new, and so yes, even though it's 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 flawed and it's not what I would recommend to somebody who wants to read a first Neil Stevenson, I would probably recommend Snow Crash or The Diamond Age or Cryptonomicon or or Zodiac, which is actually in some ways more, the mo- book that's most like this in that there's a lot of action. Right. Um, but it is what it is from the start, though. Exactly, and that's where it gets back to my complaints about this, is that I feel it's almost, I don't feel it was a bait and switch, I feel it was him thinking he was going to write one story and then deciding to write another, but in the end, perhaps he should have gone back and done more work to to spackle yeah, that over. I mean, I think, and I think to a certain extent, as I was saying about, you know, Cryptonomicon, I think it's true for a lot of his books that the, you know, the reward in reading them is in the reading oh. of them, not necessarily in the, you know, where, where it ends up. And I think we, you know, we agreed about that with Cryptonomicon. I think that's true with the Baroque cycle as well, which is to say, not that that book doesn't have, you know, I think that that series has a serviceable ending, but the the interest in that series comes from all the things that you encounter along the way right. that are just his fantastic, his digressions, as you were saying, and how interested and detailed he gets in all these things and thus makes them fascinating to us, the readers, things that you wouldn't think were fascinating. You know, the economic development of, you know, Europe, right, <laughs> right? in the 16th century. It's oh. like, oh, wow, that, how, that sounds boring hey, as hell. <laughs> I feel as if we've come to the end of our book club. Did everybody enjoy the tea and the uh, and the little lemon cookies? I miss the scones. Yeah. Uh Drinking tea. Next time I'll make scones. Oh boy. Skype scones. 
I enjoyed the gunplay. Most delicious kind. <laughs> yes. Everybody, take your complimentary ammunition as you leave. <laughs> I'll take two clips and a 45. Oh, NATO rounds you shouldn't have. <laughs> it's true. And, and and somebody here gets a Claymore. Ooh. Oh, good. I want the Claymore. It's under I your seat. <laughs> it's the, it's the door prize. The door is gone now because the Claymore was under it. Oh. Well, I would like to say thank you, Jason, for inspiring me to read this very long book, which I wouldn't have done this soon. And would not have enjoyed this much otherwise. So thank you. Oh well, why you're very welcome. I'm I'm happy to inspire you to read long books. It, it's very <laughs> sad when I'm the only one who has to read these thousand page long books. So I like I the like that other now. people do it too. <laughs> yes. But my kingdom for a three hundred page book, for Pete's sake, these thousand page books are going to kill me. So until next time on the Incomparable Book Club, I'm Jason Snell, and I would like to thank my guests here around our little table. Uh, they're finishing their tea and their scones right now. Uh, Serenity Caldwell, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Scott McNulty, thank you again. Oh, Earth Tones forever. Earth Tones forever, nice. Glenn Fleischman, thank you for being here and reading this thousand-page book with me. Thank you very much. And Dan Morin. Thanks as always, Jason. As always, you're welcome. You're so lucky to have been invited, let me tell you. <laughs> Until next time on The Incomparable, thanks to all of you for listening. Goodbye. Okay, boys. <laughs> all right. Oh, wow. That really... That snaps you out of it, doesn't it? The okay boys. <laughs> okay boys. Like, That's enough of your silliness now. Get, get, get Yes, ma'am. Go to yes, bed ma'am. Now. Mm-hmm. All right. All, all right, right, boys. All right, boys. <laughs> all right, boys. <laughs> Good night. Good night, That's all. The, Good night. That, that's the new this podcast is over. Good night.